0: There are some 400,000 people in jail today. You know what their crime is? Poverty. That's right. <laughs> and follow it through, poverty and what? They can't afford? Bail. They're gonna want to get bail. Right. Right. Take a deep breath. This is not Charles Dickens, England of 150 years ago, whatever it was. This is America today. Can you imagine? You know, you talk about, thinking about things that people are not talking about. There are people in jail today who may well be innocent, who can't afford to get out of jail because they can't afford the $5 million bail.
1: Americans love their cop and lawyer shows. Altogether, there's something like 1,700 episodes of Law & Order. The reality show Cops is the longest running primetime TV show that's not about the news. And lest we forget, Dog the Bounty Hunter grace the small screen for eight seasons and several hundred episodes. What does school get you? Staying in school gets you success. Not
0: going to school gets you jail.
1: But shows like these can make certain punitive aspects of our criminal justice system seem ubiquitous and normal, even natural, when the reality is, when it comes to how we treat the accused and convicted, the U.S is an outlier. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics that are driving the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, coming to you from campaign headquarters In Washington DC. Take cash or money bail. Cash bail is money that you pay as a deposit for the release of a person who has been arrested. The money is held as a guarantee to ensure that the defendant will return to court for trial. Now while at first glance cash bail might seem like a solid way to make sure people show up for their court dates, it turns out that there are some pretty good reasons why every other country but the Philippines and the United States avoid it. What cash bail does is criminalize poverty. That's Lara Bazelon, a law professor, writer, and director of the Criminal Juvenile Justice Clinic and the Racial Justice Clinic at the University of San Francisco School of Law.
2: So the amounts are set in this schedule. In San Francisco, for example, a robbery will be $30,000 no matter what the circumstances, who you are, or your ability to pay. So if you're a wealthy defendant accused of robbery, you'll get out. And if you're a poor defendant accused of robbery, you will stay in.
1: As Bernie Sanders often puts it, Cash bail creates a modern-day debtor's prison. It establishes a hierarchy of who walks free and who stays behind bars before any kind of trial, conviction, or sentencing. And it can have devastating
2: effects on those who can't afford to pay for their freedom. There's also a ton of evidence that shows that case outcomes are radically affected by who is able to be released pre-trial, who is able and willing to fight their case. And the longer you cage people, innocent or guilty, the more likely they are to become completely desperate and plead guilty and take whatever deal is offered because they're desperate to get out, to get a job, to keep their kids, to go back home. And in some really extreme cases, they're held pre-trial. So meaning before any charge has been proved against them, for years. And there's a famous case involving a boy named Khalif Browder in New York who was held at Rikers Island for three years on a very minor charge, couldn't make bail before the case against him was finally dismissed. And he was so traumatized and so broken by that experience that he took his own life. There are many examples like that. Khalif Browder's story is perhaps the most famous
1: and most tragic example of what the cash bail system can do. At age 16, Khalif was accused of stealing a backpack. He was jailed at Rikers Island for three years awaiting trial, nearly two of which were spent in solitary confinement. Ultimately, the state released him when the prosecutor's case was found to be lacking evidence, and the main witness had left the country. But the damage had already been done. Two years after his release, Khalif committed suicide by hanging himself from an air conditioning unit outside of his mother's home. Last week, I spoke to Khalif's older brother, Akeem. Akeem Browder is a social justice advocate pursuing changes to laws, policies, and regulations that devastate poor communities and families impacted by mass incarceration and solitary confinement. He was gracious enough to speak to me about the effect that pre-trial detention had had on his brother.
0: Khalif was a totally different Khalif. Khalif was released on May 29th of 2013. He was arrested May 10th of 2010, before he left. Khalif was a fun kid. He laughed a lot. My, my sister like mimics his laugh perfectly. He had a goofy laugh. He watched Yu-Gi-Oh, he loved Dragon Ball. He was my workout partner. Khalif played tag. He loved my mom's cooking. He did what kids do. Khalif wasn't even a troublemaker. He was the youngest of all of us. So he got to see the, the mistakes of us Khalid was really quiet and reserved, actually. He wasn't quick to cry. He was very strong. He thought he was Vegeta uh, from Dragon Ball. And so that was the kid in him. And then when he came home, you saw the immediate, in his eyes, immediate difference. Because he would stare at you as though he's still there. Or he would talk to himself as though he was still there in solitary confinement because being in solitary confinement desensitizes your senses. In solitary confinement, it takes away your senses and replaces it with, because realistically your body, your your psyche cannot operate without these human senses that we operate with. So it has to create voices so that he, you can have that kind of hearing ability or thought capacity. It desensitizes your touch, your taste, your smell. And it recreates it because it's like, you're not feeding this to me. I need to produce this.
1: I was familiar with Khalif's story, but what I didn't know was that Akeem had also spent over a year in jail without conviction.
0: It happened twice to me. Khalif was arrested in 2010. I was arrested in 2009, the year before him. Uh, Falsely arrested at that point as well, um, because they said that I was caught on video, allegedly going into the cafeteria of my college and stealing from the register and stealing from the safe. Knowing that I didn't do it, I didn't take a plea. But they were threatening me with seven years and I I can't do seven years in jail, I'm, it's not in my cards. It's not in the cards for most people or anybody, especially when you're innocent. But my bail was 5,500 so I could not afford that and even if I could, I didn't have to depend on or decide whether I should give my 5,500 to the attorney or to my bail so I can be free. We just don't have the money and in poor communities, this is the problem. Not that we don't have the money, but that our freedom is being pended on how, or pending how much you can afford. My family suffered the full front of that weight of poverty when Khalif then the very next year in 2010 was accused of allegedly stealing a backpack where his bail was $3,000. I waited a year on Rikers, not waited, like sat around twiddling my thumbs, fighting for your life while fighting for your freedom.
1: Akeem was lucky enough to get an attorney to take his case pro bono. And after nearly 10 months in jail, the prosecutor finally turned over the video evidence they were relying on as proof. At that point, it became clear that whoever did it looked nothing like Akeem.
0: The video, the guy which As an Italian man, he said in his words, the guy's blurple, blackish purple. Now, you can see me, but the audience probably can't or the listeners can't. I'm a light-skinned black. Nonetheless, I am black. But not every black man is a black man that you see in a video. He was eventually
1: vindicated. But the fact that he was ultimately released didn't bring back the year of his life he lost at Rikers.
0: Being incarcerated impacts you not just because your time was taken away from you. I was in college and in school for engineering, civil engineering, I ended up getting my, my bachelor's but it didn't come for a while after I came home, charges dropped, lawsuit after, but what happens in between that, just to make the audience understand, you are incarcerated, you lose the opportunity to see your, brothers get, or your brother get married or have a kid or Khalid missed out on that opportunity to see his niece and nephew being born. I was living in Brooklyn at the time. I lost my condo. I was engaged. I lost my relationship. I had a reputation in school. I had a job.
1: All this because his family couldn't afford bail.
0: This is the Bronx, New York. We are the poorest congressional district in America. The median household income is below poverty line. You are living check to check if you can even do that. And then to find out that you have an emergency, like your kid is sick or your kid needs braces or your child was incarcerated. That's $3,000, let alone if like my dog just died and I got rent to pay and something unexpected came up. You are way over your head, so you cannot afford it.
1: Bail bond agents sell themselves as the answer to this dilemma. But as Akeem explains... They're often no solution at all.
0: And so cash bail is when they say you have $3,000 to pay. If you could pay that, then that's the cash bail. And bail over bond, uh, so cash over bond, is the amount that's needed. So they'll say, out of $3,000, you will give $900 plus fees and interest. Now, that being said, you have to now come up with $900. And your rent is, uh, at the time in when Khalid was arrested in 2010... Or when I was arrested in 1997 and you have a mother, a single mother, taking care of her kids, which my mom adopted nine of us, forced to care of 32 of us. My mom was the, sh- the mother in the shoe, kind of. She had a lot of kids and she was just trying to do the work of a mom. Not on some huge budget. And so $900 was even detrimental to her. She didn't have it. Khalif was forced to stay in jail. And the way our jail system works is if you don't have the money, you can take out the loan, you can put in the $900 and we'll put up the rest. But you never get that $900 back, first of all. Even if your kid makes every court date and then goes home, you still don't get that money back. That was a waste of money. So basically what you're saying is, can you afford to be free? And that's the problem.
1: You might be thinking that although this sounds sad, there's good reason to make defendants give some kind of money guarantee to ensure they'll return to stand trial after they're released. But most credible evidence shows that the overwhelming majority of people come back to court, and jurisdictions which abolish cash bail see no
2: rise in failure to return rates, Professor Bazelon explains. So there are all kinds of alternatives to money bail. First of all, you can set an amount that someone could possibly make, and that really varies depending on the person, right? And second of all, if you do away with the whole idea of cash money bail, you can put other incentives in place. So you can put people in a program if they have an addiction problem. You can offer wraparound support services, electronic monitoring so that the court can keep track of them using a GPS system. Calling in. I mean, the truth is that studies show that people who are released on their own recognizance and released under systems like I've just discussed do actually have a very strong track record of coming back. Most people come back to court. The whole idea of bail is to ensure that the person comes back to court and also to protect the community in the chance that there's a danger. When you tie it to money, what you're saying is if you can pay X amount of money, those concerns go out the window. You're somehow magically not dangerous and you're definitely going to come back. And that's just not empirically true.
1: Defendants who can't afford bail have few other options than to turn to private bail bond agents who charge a percentage of the total bond, often 10 percent, which clients never see again. In exchange, the bail bond company puts up the rest of the court fee.
2: It became popular because it started basically incentivizing big businesses to start money bail, cash bail industries, where bail bondsmen were lending sums of money to people. So, for example, your bail would be set at $100,000, and the bail bondsmen would post that amount, although oftentimes they wouldn't actually even have to give the court anything, but you would have to give them 10%. And then that money they would keep regardless of what happened in your case. And so it's this huge profit-making machine. And it's those industries that are so tied to the business of money bail and to taking this money and keeping it that want to keep this system in place. According to Professor Bazelon, relying on these bail bond agents can
1: itself lock Americans into cycles of debt.
2: So just kind of a classic example is a hardworking mom, but she makes minimum wage and she doesn't have money set aside for catastrophic emergencies. Her son gets picked up on some kind of a charge and it's San Francisco and there's a money bail system. And so the bail is set at say $20,000 and she has to come up. With $2,000 to pay the bail bondsman. And so she's scrambling, thinking, how am I going to get this money? She doesn't have it. So she takes out a credit card with this absurdly high interest rate, uses the credit card to pay the money. And then the bills come due and it's just exorbitant. And she can't pay and she can't pay. And then the collections agencies come calling and then her credit score is ruined. And it's just this vicious cycle of being caught up in this debt. And let's say, too, that her son is not guilty, or at least the case against him couldn't be proved, which is more likely to be true than not. And let's also say that her son is African-American, which in San Francisco is seven times more likely to be true than not. What you're also talking about is a cycle of middle-class people descending into poverty and overwhelmingly those people coming from communities of color, and all it takes is that one arrest and that one bail schedule and that one desperate need to come up with the money.
1: For the 40% of Americans unable to cover a $400 emergency, any encounter with a criminal justice system, or a hospital for that matter, is likely to set off this vicious cycle. That's part of the reason that Bernie recently teamed up with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to propose the Stop Loan Sharks Act, which would cap interest rates on consumer loans at 15%. The bill would do away with super high interest credit cards, and it would all but eliminate the predatory payday loan industry, where annual interest rates in the hundreds are the norm. During the announcement, AOC explicitly linked predatory lenders and the cash bail industry, twin vultures seeking to make money off of Americans at their most desperate. AOC pointed out that she represents Rikers Island, which still has cash bail. So what happens, she asked, if your 15-year-old son gets picked up because he's accused of jumping a turnstile because he can't afford a MetroCard? Or if your kid gets picked up Because someone said that another young man of color, who looks like him, allegedly ran off with a backpack. Well, she said, if you can't afford your jail, you have to resort to a loan. Ocasio-Cortez gave the following hypothetical. Let's say the person arrested is your husband, who is a primary income earner. That's time he has to spend away from his job. You'd have to get a payday loan or go to a bail bondsman. So cash bail is another system where justice is purchased. As the movement to end money bail around the country gathers steam, Bernie has also led the charge at the federal level with the 2018 No Money Bail Act, which would eliminate money bail at the federal level and create incentives for states to do the same. As Bernie likes to say, nothing changes for the better in this country, without a lot of people struggling together to defeat powerful interests. And efforts to reform cash bail show how true that is. A 2017 report from the ACLU and The Color of Change revealed that backing this country's thousands of individual bond agents are just a handful of gigantic companies, including an Oregon-based private equity firm called Endeavor Capital. Last summer, California passed a law, SB-10, That would end cash bail and effectively put the state's 3,000-odd private bail agents out of business. The industry responded with a well-financed campaign, stoking fears about public safety.
2: This bill does not consider the individual victim's safety. The poor
1: are not in jail because they're poor, Mr. Sawyer. They're in jail because they broke the law.
0: What about the right of the rest of us to be safe? These clowns in the legislature ignore real issues to just
2: further their own political agenda.
1: Even the bill that was passed is a watered-down version. And now, the pro-bail coalition has managed to get California's law on the 2020 ballot for a referendum. Until then, the law is suspended and the state's private bail agents can continue business as usual. And one of the single largest donors to the campaign to overturn SB 10? You guessed it, Endeavor Capital, which contributed $800,000 to the effort. Cash bail is hardly the only part of our criminal justice system that disproportionately harms lower income and Black and brown Americans.
2: I would ask or challenge anybody to spend the day in their local criminal court and see who is coming through and see who are in the orange jumpsuits. And I'm telling you, the vast majority of those people are poor people of color, and it's not because they commit crimes at some astronomically higher rate. It's because they are more vulnerable to being arrested and jailed and charged.
1: And although a lot of public attention is on the police due to a number of high-profile incidents of over-policing, a significant amount of what goes on with our system
2: starts at the top. Prosecutors are the most powerful players in the criminal justice system. They are more powerful than the police, the judge, the jury, and certainly the defendant and the defendant's lawyer. So at every pivotal decision moment, it's the prosecutor making the decision. As you point out, the police do a lot of high-profile things, including arresting people, but it's the prosecutor's decision whether to bring a charge and what kind of a charge to bring or whether to bring multiple charges.
1: Professor Bazelon explained that contrary to our popular understanding of How the criminal justice system works, a la law and order, the role of prosecutors
2: isn't to secure convictions, It's to pursue justice. There's something called a declination rate, which means the prosecutor has discretion when brought a case to say, I'm not actually going to go forward with that case because I don't think it's a good use of resources or I don't think I can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. In many offices, the declination rate is incredibly low, meaning that prosecutors are really just pursuing almost everything the police bring them. Then you get to plea bargaining and the prosecutor decides what offers to make, for example. And if the case goes to trial, obviously the prosecutor is a crucial player. If the defendant is either convicted or accepts a guilty plea, the prosecutor recommends the sentence, and that recommendation often goes a long way with judges. So just to sum up, they are the most powerful actors out there.
1: Recently, there has been a lot of talk about progressive prosecutors.
2: These are prosecutors who understand
1: their role as advancing substantive justice rather than securing a high conviction
2: rate. I think my favorite example and probably the prosecutor locally who people have heard the most about is Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, which is my hometown. He was elected to replace a DA named R. Seth Williams, who is now serving time in a federal penitentiary because of corruption. But in addition to those sins, he also was just a terrible DA in terms of the policies that he pursued and the kinds of crimes that his prosecutors were targeting and all kinds of other policies. And when Krasner came in, it was on this reform platform. He had never been a prosecutor which is sort of amazing when you think about it. And in fact, he was known for defending Black Lives Matter protesters and bringing lawsuits against the police. Since being in office, he's made good on many of his promises, including doing away with money bail for low level offenses, not pursuing the death penalty, doing away with prosecuting a number of low level offenses and other important reforms, including conviction integrity, which looks at wrongful convictions and also implementing some restorative justice. Most people think that the prosecutor's job is to convict as many people as possible. And many prosecutors also think it's their job and they campaign on these tough on crime platforms where they crow about how many people they've convicted and how many long sentences they've meted out. But actually, that is emphatically not their job. And while this seems counterintuitive, what their job is to do is to serve justice and to vindicate the truth. And so what that means is that they're only pursuing convictions that can be proved beyond a reasonable doubt with competent, Admissible evidence, and that they're not seeking the harshest possible penalties. They're seeking the penalties that are consistent with a just result. So, more and more, this conversation is coming up about what the prosecutor's function actually is. And there's been some success. I call it a ripple, not a wave, of prosecutors like Krasner, like Kim Fox like uh, the prosecutor in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, who have had success running and winning on platforms where they talk about their role as justice-seeking rather than punitive and carceral.
1: Just think about what a difference a genuinely thoughtful and progressive prosecutor would have made in Akeem's case. He sat in jail for a year because the prosecutor had failed to disclose a video which clearly showed that the person who had committed the crime with someone else.
0: There is a discovery issue in New York, which we just solved in 2019. It's in the budget for New York to establish a new discovery process. Now the discovery process is when you get your evidence and how you get your evidence and how long it takes to get your evidence. However, New York has not had and still does not have until this bill is passed and then implemented, has not had a proper discovery practice.
1: Akeem is referring to reforms proposed by Governor Andrew Cuomo, which would require prosecutors to share evidence with the defense early in a case so that defendants can make an informed decision as to whether to take a plea deal or go to trial. Currently, prosecutors in New York can withhold evidence until the morning of trial.
0: In New York, uh, like many other states, it's usually at the time of trial.
1: Mm. To
0: understand what evidence they had against you, when you go to trial, then they were making it available.
1: So how quickly after the video was disclosed to you, were you able to be released?
0: Two weeks later.
1: Two weeks. After nearly a year in jail, it only took two weeks for came to be released once he saw the evidence.
0: In a nutshell, Khalif was victim of poverty and what happens to poor disenfranchised youth and young adults. He was allegedly accused of stealing a backpack and a book bag, no more than what, $35, $25. That backpack was the subject of his incarceration because they, someone said that he stole his brother's backpack. That being said, Khalif went to uh, was arrested and put into Rikers Island um, for an indeterminate amount of time because New York State incarcerates people at long for long periods of time until they break them. Even if it were an a tr- uh, accusation that could have had some validity to it, Khalif was a kid and did not deserve to be in a place like Rikers Island, which is a monstrous place. I mean, it's, I, it's likened to Guantanamo Bay. Uh, it, it's, it's a torture chamber.
1: I asked both Lara and Akeem if they had any parting thoughts or advice. What should we be doing? After hearing an account like Akeem's, it feels inadequate to be merely sympathetic
2: or sad. How should we act? When I was traveling a lot for my book, people would always ask me because it's about wrongful convictions and restorative justice. What can I do? I'm not part of the system. What can I do to be helpful? And what I always say is you can do two things. One, you can take jury service incredibly seriously. A lot of people joke about how awful it is, they throw out their summonses. But the truth is, it is the ultimate check. And in those cases that go to trial, you can demand the right amount of proof and insist that you're not going to convict unless you get it and you can hold your ground. And one of the worst things, especially in wrongful conviction cases, is the jurors who sort of caved in because it was 10 against 2 or 11 against 1, and they always had this awful feeling. And if they had just stuck it out, there would have been a different outcome. But the second, and I think more important thing even than that, because few people get that opportunity, is to vote in your local DA elections. And you would be amazed how few people understand that they even have the right to select their DA, Or know who's running. And we're paying so much attention, rightly so, to Donald Trump, to Attorney General Barr, to everything that's happening in the Department of Justice. And yet, that affects so few people in terms of who is prosecuted. 90, 95% of cases are funneled through and prosecuted at the local level. And so we do have direct control over who we elect in the position of. The local DA who brings those cases, who decides who gets punished and who doesn't. And so voting and really educating yourself about who is running is an incredibly empowering, effective way to be a good citizen and promote criminal justice reform. So my parting thoughts for folks who believe that prison is the default answer, which I think a lot of people feel is that we have to rethink that framing because we know it doesn't work. We know what the recidivism rates are. We know what happens to people who are stuck in prison for long periods of time. And in fact, the criminalization of of their core being is basically almost guaranteed the longer we lock people up. And there is the sense that we're spending too much money for too little results. And so there's sort of the economic case, but I think there's also the moral case and the case about, well, what does justice mean to us as Americans? What are we doing in our country? And you talk about how people can really get swept up. It's hard for most people to understand that because the criminal justice system doesn't speak to or touch most people. But what I think a lot of folks need to understand is how incredibly vulnerable you are, for example, if you're not white and don't carry a certain amount of privilege. I'll give the last word
0: to Akeem. We have to educate ourselves and pull ourselves up from the nothingness that was given to us and provide not just for our generation but for the generations to come. Because none of the work that I'm doing now is for Khalif, he's gone. I have a one and a half year old son and Raphael will never be considered white or privileged or given the opportunity unless I make those opportunities through you and I. So you, as I'm speaking to you, I'm hopeful that by the time Raphael gets to be a teenager and ready to go to college, you will have that made that way for Raphael and kids like him so that he has that opportunity that we weren't given. So the fight doesn't stop just because one bill got passed or one law got passed or one person got held accountable. Until all of us is free, none of us is free.
1: That's it for this week. Let us know what you think at heartheburn at berniesanders.com or send us a tweet with the hashtag heartheburn. If you haven't already, please take a moment to rate, review, or like us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening. As always, transcripts will be up soon. Till next time.